0: When you see that cases are taking that long, that you have to fight so much to secure a right for a victim, that is the right or entitlement, is highly frustrating. But we need to do this not only because we owe that to them, but also because we need to build strong institutions that in the future should be able to do it themselves. This is also a way to show the importance of rights to our societies, to our future generations.
1: Good morning and welcome to the latest episode of Rightscast. My name is Lorna McGregor. I am a Professor of International Human Rights Law and the Human Rights Centre here at the University of Essex. This morning, I'm with my colleague, Professor Clara Sandoval, also a Professor of International Human Rights Law and the co-director of the Essex Transitional Justice Network. And one of our former students, Anna-Katrine Speck, who is the co-director of the European Implementation Network absolutely delighted to be here with you both this morning. Actually not to talk about EIN or ETGN, but to talk about a really exciting project that both of you have been centrally involved in. This project is the Human Rights Implementation Project led by Professor Rachel Murray, the Director of the Human Rights Implementation Centre at Bristol. Now, I understand that this project has been going for a number of years and has been focusing on the implementation of the decisions of UN treaty bodies as well as the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, the European Court of Human Rights and the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. And you're at the end of the project and you're about to issue your findings in the Journal of Human Rights Practice. And so I am really excited this morning to hear about the project, how it's gone, what the key findings are, So my first question to both of you is why did you start the project in the first place? Why did you think there is a need for this project?
0: Uh, so hello everyone, thank you so much Lorna, for inviting us to be part of this podcast. We began the project some three and a half years ago uh, with a very comprehensive group of uh, scholars, uh, not only Rachel Murray at Bristol University but also Philip Leach at the University of Middlesex Alice Donald also at the University of Middlesex, Franz Biljon at the University of Pretoria and with the great collaboration also of the Open Society Justice Initiative, uh, Christian DeVos. We all got together because we had a worry about the lack of implementation of judgments and decisions in individual cases coming out from supranational human rights bodies, which was of alarming proportions. The numbers tell us that the actual implementation of these judgments or recommendations in individual cases is at the best rate of about 20 to 30 percent. And Numbers vary. The way this is quantified is not clear. But the message, the message you always got was that it's really worrying we are not really accomplishing justice for the victims we are trying to protect through these mechanisms. So we wanted to tap into that implementation gap and we wanted to see whether it was actually true that the implementation was not that good, but also to understand what hinders and what helps implementation and how we can add not only to the literature, but how can we identify tools that could help people on a daily basis working before supranational bodies to actually be able to help uh, to protect the rights of people and to implement these judgments and these recommendations. So, just
1: taking a step back from there, if, if people who are listening don't follow the work of supranational bodies, what does implementation, sort of in a simple way, mean?
2: Well, the premise of our project was that judgments do not automatically lead to justice. And this is really what all the supranational bodies try to achieve. The judgments are specific iterations as to what has to happen at the domestic level, what these fairly abstract provisions that are contained in the, for example, European or uh, or American Convention on Human Rights specifically entail. And unless they are properly implemented, they will simply not be of any use. There will be no human rights gains from these judgments. This is why we said there are essentially two problems with non-implementation. One is to do with effectiveness. The systems can simply not properly function. There will be repetitive applications to the commissions and courts and UN treaty monitoring bodies unless the root causes of human rights problems identified by these bodies are being addressed. And on the other hand, you have the normative dimension. And this is really something that we wanted to shed some light on in the framework of our project, knowing that, yes, human rights problems will prevail if There is no proper implementation.
1: Okay, so it's about the individuals who take their cases to these courts, about them getting justice, and it's also about dealing with root causes and bringing about change within a system.
0: Yeah, it aims to address these issues, but uh, we wanted to clarify the terminology as well. We, We began with two concepts. Compliance, vis-a-vis implementation, and we can even add one more now and its impact. So compliance is actually the result of executing an order given by a court. So I'll give you an example. In a case, a court says that you have to compensate a victim with 100,000 US dollars for the disappearance of a beloved one. Uh, So whether the state pays the $100,000 is what we will call compliance if it does. But that is somehow a myopic way of looking at these issues because it fully misses the process. And our interest was in understanding what happens in this long process that starts even before the judgment or the recommendations in the individual case happen up until the moment when compliance is achieved. We have a series of forms of reparation from compensation, restitution, satisfaction, rehabilitation, and guarantees of non-repetition, all of which have their tempos and have a process. And in that process, we identified that there were multiple factors and multiple actors that impinge help and trigger dynamics that help us to understand why implementation actually happens or not. So we were more concerned about trying to, to understand the nature of that process rather than just the actual compliance moment, uh, because we missed a lot in terms of who to empower, what to do, uh, what external factors can help, etc., if we just look at the actual result. And what we see in human rights, and I think this is, this is a message that we clearly have in our research, is that this is a, a, a long-time process. Implementation doesn't happen from one day to the other. And we need to be a bit uh, sensitive towards that timeline that varies according to different forms of reparation. So what do we make of it? in terms of then assessing compliance i think that's uh, something we wanted definitely to pick up on noan
2: this is absolutely true and this also this desire to shed light on the various processes and also the hidden action that might happen that might occur in this long term process of implementation also informed our methodology what we did for example was we traced the implementation of specific cases against nine states from the three regional systems and the un and We created timelines for these cases that we selected, and these timelines not only dealt with specific issues relating to the judgments themselves, such as what the violation finding was, what the reparation orders might have been, but also to deal with the implementation process in the narrow sense. Were there any working groups established at the domestic level? When did the government report to the supranational body that supervises the implementation? But they also tracked extraneous factors, external shocks that might have affected implementation. And that way, we essentially created a puzzle. And with these various pieces that we were able to uncover through this process, we were able to build this relatively comprehensive picture that shed light on the intricacies of the implementation process that the literature had prior to our project um, pretty much overlooked.
1: Okay, so you created a project out of identifying the problem that most decisions by supranational bodies were not being implemented. What were your key findings in this project?
0: Well, we have various findings. The first one is that if you look at implementation as a process, uh, you need to be quite careful in asserting that there is no compliance. You need to actually be able to uh, rescue the positive factors that you see have an impact on actual delivery by states and by other actors that become very important in the implementation process. And we can know that in our various cases. So I think one important thing that we we did discover is that if you look at the process, you can definitely uh, see things that else would have been missed. What were key findings of our project? Well, it depends on where you look at it from. We, for example, wanted to understand more about what is that ecosystem that permits implementation. And we, for example, in that way, revise somehow the literature that argued in the past that implementation was basically a domestic affair. And we try to look more at what is the role that supranational bodies can play, that civil society can play, that national human rights institutions play, and other potential actors, say us, academics, what role can we play in that process of helping to implement judgments. And I think we got uh, quite an interesting view of what is going on there by mapping that process. And we make some very important, I think, recommendations in relation to that. For example, in the piece that we wrote for the Journal of Human Rights Practice on monitoring and cajoling and triggering implementation by supranational bodies, what we found is that there is a lot of on potential, even within these bodies, as to what they can do to actually help states to implement So they do play a key role. We clearly see that. But we see, for example, that not all of them have clear mechanisms in place to deliver on that. And at times, it comes as an afterthought in their own work. What is their role in actually triggering implementation? This varies according to the bodies, and actually one of the important contributions of our work, by the way, is that our research is the most comprehensive to date in terms of looking at what these bodies have done, uh, because we have included the UN treaty monitoring bodies, although not all of them, but most of them, and we included the true regional human rights systems, commissions, and courts. So it's very comprehensive, the results that we have been able to achieve in this regard. So we note, for example, that while some systems like the European system and the Inter-American Court particular and the Inter-American Commission are are quite ahead of the game, they still have untapped potential. Simple things like something that we saw the Inter-American Commission do this year, they didn't have, well, recent information about that was the state of play of the cases at the Inter-American Commission. And since they created a special unit to monitor well implementation with uh, recommendations in specific cases, they really got hands-on on the issue. And they began to contact all people involved in the cases, literally calling, etc., just to get an up-to-date understanding of what was going on. And they were able to actually collect information that they didn't gather for quite some time. So you can be proactive. You know, you you don't always need to wait for the representatives, the states, to send you information. You as a body can be very proactive in trying to get this information. And that might involve the hours of a member of the staff, but it's not really that that costly. Uh, You as a body could, for example, request information from key experts, for example, on guarantees of non-repetition. That's another area where we see very low rates of implementation, but at times it's because these bodies don't have the information they need to have at hand in order to be able to assess it. we haven't established, for example, indicators. And it would be very easy to contact Lorna McGregor to come up with an expert opinion on, be- on a very specific case in your area of expertise, torture, detention, you know, big data, etc., to help that body to understand how to assess or what to make up of what the state is saying. So there are easy ways, fast ways, in which these bodies can do the most with what they currently have. But another thing we found with these bodies is, for example, that the communication with the other you know, bodies within the organizations, for example, say, within the United Nations, the communication between treaty monitoring bodies with the UPR, with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, with the Office of the High Commissioner for Refugees, etc., is not always that clear in relation to these topics. So they end up all talking about the same issue but without really joining forces. And that would be easy to do if there was a streamlining process of the importance of monitoring implementation. And we saw that across all the bodies so can
1: we try to put this into a bit of context? Um, because I think you're telling us so many interesting issues, but it would be really good to hear about how it plays out in individual cases. So Anna, you focused on the European court and Clara, the inter-American court. Are there some specific cases that you could walk us through, how you used your methodology, what you find in those particular cases, so we can really see how it played out? Sure, I'll do my best.
2: What Clara's answer already alluded to is that our findings are less on the aggregate level. Is implementation working or not? It's really about the intricacies of the process and what can tip the balance either away from implementation or in favor of implementation. And the role of supranational bodies is but one element of the whole spiel. We can, and I'm sure we will also talk about some of the domestic level dynamics, which yielded equally interesting results. I would like to talk you through a case example from Europe. The case is called Identoba and others against Georgia. And what happened was in 2012, a small LGBTI rally in Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia, turned violent when counter demonstrators attacked this small group of LGBTI protesters. The case was brought to the European Court of Human Rights, which established violations of the right to freedom of assembly, but also of the right to be free from inhuman and degrading treatment. The implementation process is extremely interesting because it tells us a a lot about some of the obstructive forces that were at play at the domestic level in a context where homophobia is entrenched not only in the wider society, but also among decision makers. It also tells us a lot about how the European system tries to mitigate the challenges, tries to guide the state through the implementation process when there are political costs involved in a sensitive political case. One interesting result of this research was the key role that civil society can play in counterbalancing an overtly positive account provided by the state. Oftentimes, the supranational system has to rely primarily on the account given by the state itself, its own assessment on how well it has performed in implementing a case. And in Identoba, there were civil society submissions that showed the real extent of prevailing problems. They uncovered that there were certain omissions in the government's submissions to the Committee of Ministers, which supervises the implementation of judgments. They had accidentally, on purpose, forgotten to explain that in a number of years following the 2012 attack on LGBTI protesters, no LGBTI Pride event had taken place for fear that this would repeat itself. They also provided statistics that were somehow misleading, talking about an increase in the number of hate crime investigations, a doubling of hate crime investigations within a year. But they conveniently omitted that this was only an increase from four to eight cases. So here you really see the importance of civil society counterbalancing an account provided by the government, for instance.
1: So for you is the the takeaway from European system. So the European system has the court which issues the decisions and then a committee of ministers which monitors the implementation process. Are you saying then from this case the important takeaways for other systems are one, to have a body that actually monitors implementation, but also that that process enables not only the state and not only the party to the case, but also other actors. How does that actually work? the committee of ministers? How do other actors make submissions?
2: Yes, there are two parts to your question. I think the normative expectation that we can have on any supranational body is to render visible any failure to implement and to hold states accountable for their actions and omissions. This will permit the involvement of other actors. Why is this important? Because as Clara has mentioned before, we have this system where you have a multiplicity of actors, both at the domestic and at the supranational level. And only when all of these stars align, basically, can you have successful implementation. So in a way, the supranational body monitoring implementation has to be on the lookout for compliance partners. This is a term coined by Alexandra Junäus in the literature. And we see that for this system to function well, Any supranational body supervising implementation has to be able to create an evidence-based public record of the steps taken by states and to form authoritative views determining whether they satisfy the requirements of this decision or not. And this is best done through the triangulation of information provided by various sources.
0: Yeah, and I have to say that, for example, in the European system it's quite shocking that victims and legal representatives do not have the same access that, we, for example, found they have in the Inter-American system, both Commission and Court, before the Committee of Ministers. And it's an area where you see there is room for improvement. And, and I will leave it to Anne to explore that. So first, can you tell us what, what actually
1: procedurally is in place in the inter american system? Does it completely reflect the European yeah. system where you have a court and a committee of ministers? Or does the structure look different?
0: The structure in the inter american system is quite different to that of Europe, beginning uh, with the fact that we have a two-tier system where both the commission and the court can come up with decisions on individual cases. The court coming up with judgments that are uh, fully binding and the commission coming up with recommendations in individual cases that are expected to be also implemented. In the process, you can also come up with friendly settlements. And each of these bodies has its own mechanisms to monitor implementation. One more quasi-judicial, the other uh, more judicial. But they use similar techniques. Both can use, for example, hearings. Both can, for example, use on-site visits, etc. In the Inter-American court, I'm going to focus on this uh, because I want to talk about the case of Molina Tyson. That is one of the cases we included in our project and is an emblematic case of how this process evolves and allows us to see various of the tools at hand at the Inter-American court. This is a case where we are dealing with the disappearance in 1991 of a 14-year-old boy called Marco Antonio as a result of a way of punishment by the military in Guatemala because his sister had uh, links or she had alleged links with leftist groups in the country and she had been detained, Emma, and she was raped while in detention. And I think she was going to be disappeared, but in the process of having her in a non-detention place, she managed to escape. And as a result of she escaping, uh, her brother was disappeared. This is a, a really sad case that is emblematic of the type of violence that took place in Guatemala during the armed conflict. This case goes to the Inter-American System, Commission and Court, and the Court decides the case in 2004. The Court orders various forms of reparation, importantly between 2004 and 2006, what Lucrecia Molina Tyson, the sister, calls, you know, the soft forms of reparation meaning compensation, calling a school with the name of Marco Antonio and some apologies, etc, happened. So quite fast you get implementation of some of these forms of reparation, but the hard forms of reparation, called like that by Lucrecia, meaning the investigation of the case, finding the whereabouts of Marco Antonio, had not been delivered for quite some time, up until 2018, when finally a local court in Guatemala found guilty four of the five people that had been indicted for the disappearance of Marco Antonio, including some of the top-ranking generals in the military in Guatemala, which is a remarkable, remarkable achievement. Uh, so that allows us to say that there is at least quite a strong degree of compliance with the duty to investigate. The case is still open. There are appeals going on, etc. But it's remarkable that we got there. But we had not been able to get there to that investigation to happen if it had not been because of the judgment of the Inter-American Court that generated a, well, various dynamics at the local level, nationally and internationally, that led to that. So, for example, you had one very committed family members, and I have mentioned some of them, that fought for justice day and night, day and night, but also a good group of civil society organizations that did the same in Guatemala. You had the CICIC. That was now well removed by the Guatemalan government that was fighting against impunity and that managed to put on a table the reality of corruption and the crimes of the armed conflict in Guatemala and that allowed to reduce the legitimacy of many members of the military, creating a special momentum in Guatemala for this type of prosecutions. So there were lots of backwards and forwards on our case tracing. uh, you could see that when certain governments were in place, it was more likely that you were going to, to be able to move forward, as when for For example, Claudia Pasipas was prosecutor in Guatemala. She literally energized the fight against impunity. But when people like her stepped down and others came into power, you had backwards movements in, in a case like this. But in any case, it's an achievement. It took quite some years and it shows the correlation between different actors, that ecosystem of implementation or those compliance partners, as Runeos calls them, clearly articulating efforts to get there. That's important. Yet, we haven't found the body of Marco Antonio. So there is still uh, something to be delivered on, as well as with the genetic bank that should be set up in in Guatemala. But you you see the achievements. Now, what was the role of the court in all of this period, I think is the, the relevant question. The court maintained a clear dialogue not only with the state, but also with the victims and with anyone because you can present amicus to the court on these issues during the monitoring of compliance, and they call it like that, not implementation, uh, to help the court play a role on this. There was a very important resolution from the Inter-American Court in the year 2009 that is incredibly specific as to what Guatemala should do in order to investigate a case. It basically told Guatemala the ABC of what a good investigation would be. It's a long document saying, really, you know, it's not only you have to investigate, prosecute and punish. You haven't done it, go and do it. No, it said you need to establish, you know, you need, in the prosecution office, you need to do A, B, C and D. You need. It was really, really specific, and I think it helped uh, the. People people that were at the prosecution office at the time in Guatemala, people like Claudia Pasipas, etc., and others, to be able to carry out their job. It somehow legitimized, one legitimized the other. But there have been also hearings uh, before the Inter-American Court, and I want to refer to this because it's, I think, important and shows, again, that you can be creative about thinking about these issues. So after we got justice in this case last year, or at least almost justice, Guatemala this year decided to, again, kind of amend its amnesty laws in order to have an amnesty in place again, no? crimes in order to exonerate of these guys that we finally have been able to punish. When Guatemala decided to do that, civil society organizations, including international ones like Sahil, Sahil was also involved in the case of Molina Tyson, got together and said, we cannot allow this to happen. We need to get the inter-American court to act in real time, basically. And they asked the court to order provisional measures In this case, provisional measures provisional measures are measures that the court can take in order to respond to imminent violations of the rights of people in order to prevent them from happening, basically. And in this particular case, the argument was that if Guatemala was to get back to this amnesty, what would happen was basically that all the orders that the court had given in various cases over the years, basically saying you have to investigate, prosecute and punish, will be kicked out of the table. They will not happen. So Sahil and all of these organic organizations call the court to act on this case and on another one called Chichupac. And they have a hearing at the court, public hearing, in a way we are blaming and shaming you, Guatemala, for what you've done. And as a result of that, the court orders provisional measures in the case telling Guatemala, you cannot adopt an amnesty law and we call you to stop this process, which basically means in compliance terms or in implementation terms is not only whether how can I get the state to go forward, but also how can I get the state not to go backwards? Because here we would be going backwards into what we had already achieved. And still, the fight continues. These are still open issues in Guatemala, but I believe that there is a summatory of factors in Guatemala through the lens of Molina Tyson, but you can also see other of the cases that led you to believe that this group of, of actors, not only national, but also the court playing a key pivotal role all the time, no? impacting, helping, giving tools to these civil society groups, to the victims themselves, to ensure that there is a fight against impunity that is effective and impactful happens is crucial. So it's a very nice uh, map of all of the actors and all of what they could actually do.
1: I think you're both giving a really clear picture of how complex and nuanced implementation is before both the bodies that you're talking about and what really comes out from what both of you have said and the cases you've pointed to is the importance of key figures taking judgments and using them as part of their advocacy strategies, as part of their pursuit of justice and pursuit of change in the different countries, whether that's a family member, whether it's a civil society organisation. But you've both talked about very different structures in the systems that you've worked on. Clara, you're talking about the court um, itself, the one that issues a judgement being the one to oversee whether it's actually complied with and implemented. But Anna, you're talking more about a political body that oversees implementation. And you've both spoken about different ways in which civil society has been able to bring information to the attention of these bodies. Does it doesn't matter whether it's a political body or the court overseeing implementation? This is an
2: interesting question. I think there is a precursor to this question or a caveat, perhaps. In the European system, you do indeed have a political body ultimately making the decision of whether or not a case has been fully implemented. But an important role is also played by the Department for the Execution of Judgments. This is a secretariat body that has essentially a twofold mandate.
1: Secretariat of the Council of Europe. Yes, exactly.
2: It services the Committee of Ministers on the one hand, providing information that will aid these delegates, these political actors, in making their assessment. And on the other hand, the Department for the Execution of judgments engages in a very close dialogue with the national authorities. It provides technical assistance in designing the remedies. And here again, we run into a crucial difference between the European system and the inter-American system. Clara has alluded to the fact that in the inter-American system, you usually deal with reparation orders that are very specific. In Europe, on the other hand, the judgments from the European Court of Human Rights are usually, in the court's words, essentially declaratory in nature. This means that you first have to determine what implementation would actually entail.
1: Tail. And if so what, give an example of the types of words you might see in a decision from the European court.
2: Sometimes the court would not even be clear on what the root causes are of a violation. Sometimes it would indeed implicitly state that a violation stemmed, for example, from a law that was not in conformity with convention standards. In other cases, but these are the rare exception, it would, for example, hint towards the adequacy of a specific remedy, such as legislative changes?
1: So the decision might say there's a finding of a violation of Articles 2, 3 and 4, for example, and then it might order some compensation to be paid. But beyond that, the language of the decision might not give any further instructions on what they expect the state to do to actually act upon a finding of a violation. And so with the root causes, you have to work back into the decision to look Absolutely. This is absolutely right. And when we say you have to
2: work back and look at the root causes, identify the root causes in order to be able to eliminate them, we really mean the state. The state gets the first say in determining the scope of
1: implementation and therefore also to predetermine the scope of supervision. So, here we do run... That's different from the inter American judgments where they spell out in the judgment much more clearly what they think the state has to do. So, it has to investigate the disappearance, it has to provide compensation. Clara talked about guarantees of non repetition. So, meaning what it has to do to make sure this doesn't happen again, which could mean change laws, set up particular bodies, train the police. So, there's more specificity in the inter American court decisions. And you're arguing that that makes a difference to what the structures of monitoring look like.
2: It does make a difference. But in both systems, we see one fascinating fact, namely that regardless of the setup of the supranational body, implementation is a really iterative process, the end point of which may not even become apparent until months or years down the road. I had a conversation with Clara recently where we discussed how in the European system sometimes the Committee of Ministers, the body supervising implementation would become more prescriptive and more specific over time. It would first leave discretion to the state in determining what ought to happen at the domestic level. But if the results are not forthcoming, it might nudge it towards specific action oftentimes informed by recommendations made by civil society organizations, for instance. And a similar development can be seen in the inter-American system as well, where over time it turns out that a specific order from, for example, the inter-American court is not quite crafted well enough in adapting to the domestic context so as to permit delivering on the premise of the judgment. And here, The European system arguably has an advantage. There is more flexibility in the system because of the lack of specificity. The committee of ministers can adapt. It can also use tools of persuasion or sometimes use the stick instead of the carrot and say enough is enough. You have not progressed as quickly as we would have liked to see. And what happens in that situation? Well, there are several tools that the Committee of Ministers has at its disposal. It can, for example, adopt an interim resolution. This would signal to the state, but also to other states, that there is a major problem. Even prior to that, there is a system whereby you have two different supervision tracks, as we call them. You have the standard supervision and you have enhanced supervision cases under the standard supervision will usually be dealt with bilaterally between the Department for the Execution of Judgments and the state authorities concerned, without political involvement by the Committee of Ministers until such point when the Department proposes the case for closure. In the enhanced cases, however, you have much more active involvement of the Committee of Ministers. The case will actually be on the agenda of the Committee of Ministers, so the politicians' look at the cases much more closely. And there is also more technical advice from the Department of the Execution of Judgments. It's just this way of keeping a closer eye on what the state is actually doing or not doing.
1: And what about in the Inter-American? Do you feel that it works well to have the court um, supervising the implementation? Or are there features of the European system that could work well in the Inter-American?
0: I think that context matters when it comes down to what is the appropriate international design for the supranational bodies in terms of who monitors. And I think that in the inter-American system, is actually quite good that the inter-American court has jurisdiction over monitoring its own judgments because of the emblematic presence it has in the region and the fact that uh, we don't have always uh, fully, you know, that the best citizens in the region in the sense of these states are not always really bound by the rule of law or don't act necessarily complying with it. So it is more likely that a court would create the necessary environment for them to implement than if you have a political body. And indeed, in the inter-American system, you could, and the court has done that, you can't send a case to the General Assembly and ask the political body of the organization to basically deal with the lack of implementation. And what we've seen is what one of our interviewees actually said to us is like a salute to the flag, which means they do nothing. So, the political bodies will not be that receptive themselves, but also the other states will not be receptive to what they would say to them in terms of implementation. So, I think uh, it is right at the moment, as I see things in the Americas, to have the court doing it. What I see as a problem is the lack of a bigger pool of people at the court doing this job. At the moment, they have about four people monitoring compliance with over 1,000 forms of reparation today, and the amount of forms of reparation continues to grow although the court has really taken measures since 2015 to try and reduce the backlog of cases that are pending compliance. And how do we go about dealing with such complex forms of reparation, which are not always about compensation? Compensation is paid. I think our research also saw that in our cases, most of our cases uh, have achieved compensation. But when it comes down to guarantees of non-repetition, like for example, enacting a new public policy in relation to detention, training military personnel. Now we get, for example, very interesting judgments that were not included in our project because are recent of recent occurrence, but that really are to be worried, at least in terms of how are we going to deal with this? And is the court is now deciding on violations of economic, social, and cultural rights, found them justiciable finally. And we have cases like Cuscul de Piral versus Guatemala, where it is ordering the state to take various measures in relation to the right to health, in relation to antiretroviral medication, and and many other things uh, that really ask you, well, how are we going to be able to monitor this, not only to monitor in terms of follow-up but to trigger Guatemala to fully comply with these measures. What indicators are we going to use? Who are going to be the partners we're going to have? Uh, But I have to say that the court is thinking. What what I like about the court, it is clear engagement and commitment to push this issue forward uh, and to continue as much as it can to award uh, the types of reparations it has been awarding. So, For example, this year, earlier in the year, it decided to make public the information it has on cases pending compliance on guarantees of non-repetition, precisely to facilitate the potential impact that civil society, academics, experts could have, could give the court in relation to the actual implementation of these measures. And I think this is a step in the right direction. Not sufficient in relation to guarantees of non-repetition, but you see a body that is really uh, on the game trying to find solutions, trying to think creatively as to what, what can be done. And I think that the, the Inter-American court you know, is the only body of all the ones we saw that is not only trying to monitor, but is even going outside its own court to do on-site visits, to monitor implementation, uh, so, for example, in massacre of de Sanchez, there was another of the cases we looked at. The, this case is, is uh, fascinating. It's one of these cases. Uh, well, in this case, uh, there was a massacre of an indigenous community in 1982, where more than 260 people were fully massacred. Uh, many had to fled. Women were raped. Sexual violence took place. It's a very sad case. I visited the community, and I'll tell you what I found. But what is interesting about this case is that the Inter-American Court decides this case in. 2004, 2005. But then it visited Plan de Sanchez in 2017 to monitor compliance with a specific measures it had ordered before. So we are talking about more than 10 years after the judgment, because while some forms of reparation were implemented, for example, the compensation at $7 million were paid in this case as part of compensation. Why was that compensation so high possible? Because Frank LaRue, was appointed as the director of COPREDE. He was a key human rights person who had been in key human rights institutions in the country before. There is a good political environment. He's appointed in the right place at the right time and says, this has to be paid. It was paid. So you see how key people can play a pivotal role in cases like this. But in relation to the other forms of reparations, some of which were really corrective, because they were trying to give, for example, roads to Plan de Sanchez. Uh, and, and I had mentioned this to Anne before, but to get to Plan de Sanchez with the road they have, I thought our car was going to break down. It was so, so difficult. And I know that many of them have to walk down uh, through the mountains just to get down to Rabinal, uh, because it's very difficult. So the court ordered a road, paving the road to get there. It also ordered like health facilities. It also ordered education measures, like the children should be taught in their own language by adequate personnel. It also ordered a sewage system because they don't have a good sanitation system. So the court wanted to look specifically at what happened with implementation of these kind of development-like reparation measures. Uh, And the court visited the place. It was the first time, and this was said to us by the victims, that they saw authorities of the state of the highest level, just because the Inter-American court visited the place. But I think this changes completely the way you see things, when you can really relate to the place to the victims, to the conditions in which they live, to their needs. Uh, and this was the same for the court. Uh, I had very interesting conversations about, well, what if the court had at the time ordered X and not Y? Would it have been possible to implement it easier or not? But I think it's a new measure that allows you to really follow up uh, on implementation. And also, in cases like this, after such a long time, to say to the state, we are still looking at you. Uh, there is still momentum to implement these measures. So I I, I welcome initiatives like that. We need more of that. So
1: you've now brought in a new dimension, which is the court or the monitoring body going to the place where violations have taken place and looking at monitoring there. So now we have the compliance partners, we have the importance of taking information and challenging the information that the state has to either the court or to the monitoring body. But now we also have those monitoring bodies going out to countries. So you're giving a much thicker account of ideally what it takes to monitor compliance and to monitor implementation. But how do these courts, how do these bodies actually do this? I think you're bringing out a lot that we can learn from, for all supranational bodies, about how they can monitor, how they can secure implementation in a stronger way. But we also know that both the European Court and the Inter-American Court are facing a huge backlog of cases that have come into these courts. We also know, particularly for the Inter-American Commission, which plays a very pivotal role in the Inter-American human rights system, that there are huge funding challenges. The number of cases in both courts really high, and so therefore really high in the implementation phase too. How can these courts, in the context that we're actually in, How do they go about improving their implementation practices to do all the things that you're talking about, particularly something like a country visit, which we know has has so many positive attributes, not only in terms of checking, but as you say, the the signal to those most affected that we're here, we're here where you are, and, and we're looking at what's happening.
2: I think this is a field where the European system can really learn from the inter-American system. We often conceptualize the European system as the most developed one. But when it comes to being able to see what is happening at the domestic level, identifying step towards or, in fact, away from implementation, there is less proactivity on the part of the Department for the Execution of Judgments and the Committee of Ministers when comparing these bodies to the practice of the Inter-American Commission in particular, and the court as well. For instance, in 2018, the Inter-American Commission launched a pilot project whereby the Secretariat would phone victims and their representatives in order to get their views on how implementation was going. And this led to an incredible 200-fold increase in the number of responses they got. The Department for the Execution of Judgments, while having become way more transparent and open to civil society engagement, can do a little more, in my view, to solicit the views of those who are on the ground. And this has tremendous benefits. I just want to throw in another case example from the European system, if I may. We had one case from the Czech Republic. It's called Bures against the Czech Republic. And what was at stake here was there was a problem about tying persons to a bed in a sobering up center in a psychiatric hospital. This was a problem. The government took measures to improve the situation. Actually, in good faith, It reported to the Committee of Ministers on what it had done, and the case was closed. We went to the country and spoke with civil society actors and they actually told us that there might have been negative side effects that were not visible in that there was a shift away from this practice of physical restraints of persons towards medicating them. This is something that the European system was simply not aware of, and that is why it's so crucial in our view to have more proactive forms of soliciting information from these various actors who are in a better position to report on what's happening. And this is equally true in the the inter-American system when it comes, for example, to victims' involvement, where we are talking about symbolic measures. There's arguably a high risk of these measures being futile or even counterproductive when the views of victims are not adequately being represented.
0: Yes, we've learned in the Inter American cases, in various of them, that involvement of victims is crucial to ensure that uh, they are satisfied with the reparations, but also that they are actually implemented in an adequate manner. So, for example, in the case of La Rochella versus Colombia, a monument had to be built and uh, it was like a sculpture, more than a monument. It was a sculpture and they had to transport this sculpture from uh, Bogota to Santander uh, and then put it in the place. But in between, they didn't have where to keep the sculpture until it was going to be placed in the in the right location. As a result of that, the military offered to keep it in its barracks, uh, which caused, well, it really upset the victims because they felt that they were putting precisely the sculpture with the military that they said was involved in the massacre too, that was complicit in it. Uh, so these are the kinds of things that you cannot do. You need to fully consult victims when you are going to deliver on reparations. One interesting thing that
2: this reveals is that it's not always about bad faith on the part of the state. If I understand you correctly, Clara, this was not a case where the state deliberately said we are not going to comply. Sometimes there are issues about lack of coordination on the domestic level. So there is a capacity element. But sometimes it even goes beyond that. And I think this was fairly astonishing to us in the research as well. But it really shows how complex things are and how things can go wrong, even in the absence of bad faith.
1: I think what you're both really bringing out to this is that when we read literature on compliance and implementation or reports on on both, what we often see is percentages, statistics about how many recommendations, how many decisions have actually been implemented. But I think What you're both bringing to this are so many stories that are so complex around how implementation has or hasn't happened, and the different factors, and the different actors, and the different way in which courts and other bodies can influence, and some very practical recommendations from picking up the phone and finding out what's happening to things like public hearings, to transparency in terms of the information that you have, to country visits. So it's a much thicker and more complex story about implementation and I think that your methodology is really important to underline here because I think we're learning a lot more through your research about what it takes to actually make implementation happen Um, and I very much appreciate that qualitative approach that you've both taken. If you could have a few asks, I won't give you a number, but if you could have a few asks of the European Court and the Committee of Ministers and the Inter-American Court, Clara, what would you want them to see? If they could take a few measures to improve their approach to implementation on the basis of your research findings, What what would they be and do you think they're achievable?
2: In the European system, we actually found through research specifically about the specificity and prescriptiveness of the European court's judgment, that there is appetite for more specificity. I said before that um, flexibility is a virtue, but the Department for the Execution of Judgment is sending a very clear message to the court. We appreciate guidance from you because it helps us in dealing with the states. There is less of a battle of what is actually needed and what might just be a nice to have, but not essential to solving the underlying issue. The judges are still very wary to enter into this field, fearing that an ill-conceived measure might backfire and lead to pushback from states. Our research showed that there is little, if any, empirical evidence for states pushing back against a specific remedial indication so i do think there is there is room for evolving the remedial practice of the european court of human rights when it comes to the practice of the committee of ministers and the department for the execution of judgments there are a number of things that they already are doing quite well for instance there is a huge database called hudoc exec where you can find all the case documents government action plans, where they talk about what measures they're going to take, assessments by the Department for the Execution of Judgments. This, in principle, aids both the court, which can see at what point implementation has arrived, and also domestic actors who want to pick up the case and use it as a lever to push for reforms. But much more can be done to incentivize that type of strategically using the judgments as tools for change. For example, by inviting civil society actors to contribute actively, both at the domestic level, in inputting to the designing of an action plan, for example, but also in reporting through the Committee of Ministers. They do appreciate civil society input. One member of the execution department has said that civil society is essentially the eyes and ears of the Committee of Ministers. So they are open, but they are not going the extra mile currently partly for resource reasons, to get the whole picture. And that is something where we think a bit more can be done and it would yield positive results. Another requirement for the European institutions is to create an honest narrative about the state of implementation. I think it is of crucial importance that we don't get the impression that everything is going great. There is a bit of a number game going on within the Council of Europe. The narrative has been that implementation has become better because the number of overall cases pending execution has gone down in recent years. This, I would argue, is not necessarily the case because oftentimes these judgments are merely repetitive cases dealing with issues that are already being assessed under a so-called leading judgment. A leading judgment epitomizes a broader problem that needs resolution by adopting general measures of non-repetition. So it's really that category of cases that we need to look at when we deal with statistics. And there we see that not much has happened since the height of the crisis in the European system. So implementation is arguably not getting better. And we need to call a spade a spade and make people understand that we
1: have work to do. Brilliant. Thank you. And on the Inter-American side?
0: Uh, Well, the first thing is we have also the Inter-American Commission. So something I think we've learned with our project is that we need better coordination between the monitoring and the protection mandates of the commission and the impact that the commission can have at the court. So what we see at the moment, and we got this in various interviews, is that while the Inter-American Commission does a lot of work on monitoring, it is like a different silo to the silo of monitoring implementation with the specific recommendations. And for example, the way they link when you think about guarantees of non petition is crucial. And there is a lot of information it gathers through the monitoring mandate that could immediately go into the implementation of a specific cases. We are not seeing that at the moment, so this is an area where they need to streamline the two mandates. But again, the commission can play a pivotal role at the court because it continues to appear at the court during the monitoring compliance period. And And rather than asking the commission to give information about individual measures, the commission should be asked for information on structural issues, no? So we need to start thinking more strategically about individual measures, guarantees of non-repetition, and and get the most of the Inter-American Commission as an actor before the court when you deal with monitoring compliance. That would be point one. Point two is we need more clarity from the court in relation to the existing tools it is using. So when does it enact resolutions and why? When does it actually grant hearings and why? I think uh, there is no clarity on this. They just happened. So it will be very important to have very clear criteria. It gives transparency. It helps operators also to deal with when can I ask for this, when I cannot. Uh, how do I go about, for example, joining cases in order to monitor compliance with the specific measures that we have, for example, with rehabilitation or duty to investigate, etc. So I think that's another area where easy you can achieve that. But we need also better access to information in the sense of the public knowing what is going on with each case. So while the resolutions are public and now they decided to make some information public in relation to guarantees of non-repetition, we don't have a hoodock exec. Uh, And I think while I understand that there are issues also in terms of confidentiality and the like, the court needs to think carefully about what information can be used to empower local and other constituencies so that they can play an active role in triggering implementation. So certainly these bodies cannot implement for the states, but they can play a pivotal role in helping the state to find ways to do it. So I think that's another area. The other point I would like to make is we need a stronger unit at the court monitoring compliance. We cannot rely on four people that are very good. I I was impressed with what they do. But to monitor a thousand forms of reparation and to use all the tools available at the court, you need a robust unit. And here my appeal is not necessarily to the court, but to the states in the region and to donors to really support the work of monitoring implementation because it is not only follow-up. Really, if these bodies are able to deliver on the various tools they use to help implementation, we will really address structural issues that will benefit society and will benefit the international community, broadly speaking, and will help to protect rights. And then the amount of cases that are getting there now are going to be reduced if we help states to really become the key actor of transforming their national human rights situation. And I think this is a way of indirectly doing that. If, If we get a set of people that really understand about implementation that know about indicators. This is an area where we don't have great expertise at the moment at these bodies. We need to be able to say the way to monitor compliance is not only specific in terms of these are the measures, but also the court telling us and these other bodies telling us these are the indicators we will use, qualitative, quantitative, you know, of procedure of outcome, etc. That will be used to measure this forms of reparation. And we don't have clarity about that either. So I think it's another area that we need to tap into, particularly when it comes down to public policies. And and the Inter-American court is also dealing with orders of, of public policies. So I think that's that's important. That will be already a step in the right direction. And maybe the last point I will make and and is just to note the Inter American Commission now precisely trying to be proactive on this called for the creation of a special network of academics and, and, and other institutions to support its work in various areas like economic, social and cultural rights, but also implementation. And I think these bodies can really articulate in a more formal way who their partners are and what kind of information they could expect from them. So even with the scarcity of resources, you can still find the partners and you can still do the job.
1: So one point you said in there, I think really bears repeating that we've talked about both courts having so many cases coming before them and a huge backlog. But you talked about the idea of a feedback loop, really, that if implementation is achieved, particularly when we're talking about very structural issues within a society, that could be a game changer for what the human rights situation looks like in that country, particularly in terms of rule of law, in terms of how particular institutions work. And the idea then is that some cases will lessen and that there will be less cases coming before courts in repeated type cases where you see repeated violations. So I think that that's a really important point to to underscore, which is often missed in the implementation conversation, that more implementation could actually relieve pressure and have less cases going up to the international level in the first place. The other question I wanted to ask you is, we talked a lot about resources of, of the courts, but you have brought out these compliance partners so many times on the podcast. What are their resource needs to be able to really play a proactive um, and strong role in monitoring? It starts with funding for
2: implementation work. There is an apparent preference from funders for litigation work they often don't conceptualize implementation as being something that is worthwhile supporting. So I believe there are a number of lessons that can be learned from what we see in NGOs struggle, for example, to obtain funding for implementation work. Sometimes this is due to them struggling to show what kind of impact their, for example, submissions to supranational human rights bodies have made. So isn't it incumbent then on the supranational monitoring bodies to shed light on how they have used NGO submissions, how they have informed their decisions, etc.? Is it not even incumbent on supranational monitoring bodies to directly fund, for example, civil society engagement in the process If there is a barrier to engagement because of them struggling to show impact, why not have the supranational body engage more directly with the NGOs and trying to support them financially as well? I think there is also something about framing the conversation. Sometimes we look at implementation, it seems fairly abstract. So in order to mobilize more people behind the cause, it might actually be worthwhile talking a bit more about the broader impact that implementation can lead to. Clara mentioned that in the very beginning of this podcast, implementation can lead to broader impact. It doesn't always just benefit a small group of direct beneficiaries, persons in a similar situation as the victims. In Georgia, for example, we had a case that was successfully implemented despite being politically contentious, let's say. It dealt with a lack of proper medical care for persons suffering from infectious diseases in the penitentiary system. So you could say, hey, this is not a popular cause. Why would we help prisoners if the population is suffering from a similar problem, infectious diseases? concerns us all. This case is very, very fascinating from various standpoints. On the one hand, it showed how a judgment can become relevant even a couple of years after it has been issued. There were a number of cases from the European Court of Human Rights, but it was only after a change in government that they were really used actively by the new government in triggering reforms. And specifically here again, we see the importance of individual agency. It was one deputy ministers who really ran with a case. He crafted an argument around the case to convince not only his fellow ministers, but also broader segments of society that investing into the penitentiary system to eliminate infectious diseases such as tuberculosis and hepatitis is a worthwhile cause. How did he do that? He managed to make sure that the government negotiate with the international manufacturers of pharmaceuticals to get the price for medication down in a pilot project to eliminate infectious diseases and hepatitis C in particular in the penitentiary system. And this project was then expanded to the broader public. So the promise to the broader public, which was skeptical at first, was you will ultimately benefit from this as well. And it did happen. The case was closed and the whole project was expanded. Here we see that implementation can really lead to much broader impact. And if we tell more of these stories, more of the success stories, while also highlighting what non-implementation bears in terms of costs for the individuals, this, I believe, can mobilize more people behind the cause and really make a difference.
0: Yeah, I just will add to that, that we need, I think, forthcoming research, and I hope we are part of the ones doing that, has to look carefully at the correlation between implementation and impact, because the two conversations seem to be separate conversations. And again, I think our research allows to say they are not necessarily. Uh, So you can have impact, as in the inter-American system we have had with reparations, but in terms of implementation, we need to see that even if we have impact, but we don't have implementation, there are consequences, as Anne was mentioning before, and we saw it, for example with the case of Molina Tyson. In the case of Molina Tyson, uh, the fact that we can go back to the discussion of amnesties is a clear result of the fact that these states have not really investigated, you know, with the exception of Molina Tyson. But in the other cases, a very, very small progress has happened. So if we had been able already to fight against impunity by implementing the decisions of the inter-American court, we would have a much more solid rule of law in the states institutionally that will prevent, you know, going backwards. And still the impact will be happening. The impact will reinforce uh, the implementation dimension. So my, my last comment would be that one. We need to ensure that we do research on the correlation between implementation and impact. Okay, so one
1: last question before I ask what's the, the way ahead. We've heard today about how long cases take and how long implementation takes. From the perspective of victims, what does access to justice mean in this context?
0: Let me, let me go back to something that Lucrecia Molina Tyson said in the case of Molina Tyson when they got the judgment of the Inter-American Court in 2004. The judgment begins a process of reparation itself. It's a process. It vindicated their truth. It showed others that they were not lying, that the shame was not their shame, but it was the shame of the military. And I think this experience is shared by many victims. And we start a very important process with the possibility of dignifying victims. And I think what states need to learn and take from this is that the process matters as much as delivering on the specific forms of reparation. And they could do far more than they are doing without coming up with excuses about financial resources and the like, just by treating victims in a dignified way and allowing victims to have access to justice. All of this is the experience of access to justice. But I have to say that when you see that cases are taking that long, that you have to fight so much to secure a right for a victim, that is the right, their entitlement, is highly frustrating. But we need to do this not only because we owe that to them, but also because we need to build strong institutions that in the future should be able to do it themselves. This is also a way to show the importance of rights to our societies, to our future generations. So it's terrible that this is happening at the expense of those that have been victimized today, but I think they are also making a very important contribution to society. And I think that we all, are part of that group of people that have to support them in their search and fight for justice. But it's it's an unfinished fight for justice. I do recognize that. And it really tells us a lot about the way, I I don't want to finish with a, a, a bad note, but I think supranational bodies need to take very seriously that they are also about providing victims with access to justice, that they have to take that role seriously, even at the implementation part, and that waiting for so many years and letting things lapse is not access to justice.
1: This is a bottom line of of your research and of implementation that we have to be able to get this to work faster and better to bring about structural reform but also to really ensure that access to justice is effective. So I think that is a really important takeaway from your research that if we can bring about this change, it will make a real difference to people who are going through this process.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think what we've tried to do is to show that there are tools that we all can use regardless of whether we are academics, a civil society organisation, a national human rights institution, that we all have a responsibility and I think that we want to underscore in relation to implementation and that this cannot be any longer an afterthought. We need to take this seriously because victims matter and structural issues matter.
1: So looking forward with your research, I've learned so much today about more that can be done by both the American and the European system, and I think there will be more podcasts from the project. Your publications are coming out in the Journal of Human Rights Practice, and you will also have an accessible report coming out with the Open Society Justice Initiative. So what's next? What are the key things for research in this area next?
2: That's a very interesting question. I think I have two fields of interest. I would find it very, very interesting to demonstrate in a more hard-edged way what impact civil society has. This is what we discussed before, the difficulty in proving that this makes a difference. And I would also be really, really interested in doing a bit more of the same. We picked countries that were not pariahs in a way. So what would have happened had we selected Azerbaijan for Europe, for example, a country that has barely ever executed even a single judgment? What would happen if we were to select countries that are a bit more emblematic of the political challenges that we are facing, the undermining of the rule of law, backtracking on human rights, etc.? I suppose we would see more of while game-playing, perhaps instrumentalizing some of the obstructionist tactics that actors opposed to implementation might have used, and conversely, the tactics that pro-implementation constituencies may have developed working towards implementation.
0: Yeah, and in in my uh, personal opinion, we also need to unpack the concept, our relationship between impact and implementation. That's project one. Project two, we need to look more at what happens with implementation of recommendations and orders in relation to violations of economic, social and cultural rights. I think that now that we have momentum and we have cases that we didn't have before, that's why we, we engage with some of them, but not with many, because there were no cases. But now we're getting them. So we need really to tap into that one. And I agree with Anne, we need to look into the outliers. We need to see what we can learn from those outliers in terms of implementation. And to start doing, our project was not comparative. That's very important to, to underscore. But I think there are now issues that we need to explore more. And is for example, the issue of hearings. How could they happen with different institutional designs like in Europe and in the Americas? Or what would be you know, good? for an African system or the like, yeah. Well,
1: thank you both so much. It's been an absolutely fascinating podcast um, and I really look forward to reading your research. Um, Thank you, Clara. Thank you. Thank Thank you you. to you, Lorna. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rightscast from the University of Essex Human Rights Centre. You can subscribe and find more of our episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow the Human Rights Centre blog at hrcessex.wordpress.com. We'll be back soon with more regular episodes.